The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Victoria Moran is a renowned author, speaker, vegan lifestyle coach and educator, and the host of the popular podcast, Main Street Vegan. Victoria has been vegan for over three decades and has dedicated her career to helping people eat plant-based themselves and remove cruelty from every aspect of their lives. But she does much, much more than tell people why they should go vegan and how to do it. In this candid conversation, Victoria and I discuss her Main Street Vegan Academy program, which works to train and certify vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. And she shares stories about how people from all across the world have come through the program and learned to take their passion into thriving careers. Victoria has an amazing philosophy about how anyone can use the skills that they have learned be it economics, fashion, writing, or anything else, and apply that knowledge to further their animal advocacy. With this in mind, she has helped people launch vegan cheese shops, cruelty-free fashion companies, and a number of other innovative businesses that are helping to cut animals out of the supply chain. We also talk about the role that spirituality plays in creating a more compassionate world, and Victoria shares plans she has for an upcoming film that is sure to flip our social relationship with animals on its head. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Victoria and get more inspired every time I speak with her. I certainly hope you get as much from this conversation as I did. Victoria Moran, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is uh, very exciting for me to sit down with you. And I was on your podcast recently and had just a wonderful time chatting with you um, on the podcast and even after that for more than an hour or two. Uh, and I realized that just you just have so much insight uh, into the world of food and um, the evolution of vegan food and the vegan food movement and the current state of the plant-based space that uh, we could have a conversation about 10 different topics. So this, that's going to be the challenge today is what shouldn't we talk about? Um, and of course, that brings up the challenge is where do I start? So I, let's start maybe with the beginning. Um, you are one of the pioneers in the in eating plant-based and eating vegan You've been doing it, as far as I know, more than 30 years now. Yes. And uh, you also were, um, uh, one of your first books was about spirituality. Um, and you've been talking about that for years, mindfulness, spirituality, and how you need to incorporate that into your life. Um, and the reason I want to start there is because we are in the year 2018. And as anyone who pays attention to the news in 2018 knows that we're in the midst of a lot of political chaos in this country uh, especially, um, 
But the one silver lining in 2018 is that plant-based eating, vegan eating has never been more popular. Uh, and spirituality, mindfulness, and some sort of um, uh, those practices are coming back in a big way. Uh, the modern new age movement, it's almost becoming, you know, so in some ways, plant-based foods have become this new commercial opportunity. And so has spirituality uh, with meditation and uh, sound baths and yoga and all kinds of things. Um, so I want to start there because you've been at this for much longer than most people and I'm sure have a ton of insights. Um, does the current state of uh, where we are give you hope for humanity or does it, uh, does it really worry you and scare you? Well, it certainly breeds enlightened activity. I think any time that there's a lot of turmoil in the outer world, a lot of people are going within to see how can I make a difference. So one of the great things about being the age that I am, which is 68, is that I lived through 1968, which was another time of great turmoil. There were assassinations and riots in the street, and it really looked like Armageddon was near. But at that time, there were these embryonic beginnings of things like yoga in the Western world. I remember reading every yoga book in the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library, all three of them, many times. <laughs> and that's what pushed me into becoming vegetarian in 1969. Uh, that time was also certainly when the civil rights movement had been going for a while and really had steam and the black power movement was coming in there, something we'd not heard of before that really put power and force there and forced people who hadn't been looking to look. Women's rights was just beginning. All these things and so I think that we're kind of cycling through another period like that now. I think the danger this time around is that there's so much opportunity for entertainment. There's so much of this bread and circus thing. <laughs> we can be so tied to our phones and to the next thing on Netflix that we can lose sight of the fact that there are some serious things happening now, and that could be depressing and scary, or we can just go forward to fix them. And maybe we'll succeed and maybe we won't. But if we don't, I would hate to be there looking at Armageddon and thinking I didn't do anything. But boy, I watched a lot of Netflix. <laughs> that that makes it even more clear to people like you and, uh, and I, to a certain extent, I guess, uh, in terms of the work that we do, uh, the crucial importance of it at this point in time. Um, so as... As you said, we kind of go through these cycles in history, and I love that you bring up um, history because I draw a lot of my... Uh, sometimes when I get overwhelmed with what's in the news, I just stop paying attention and I start reading history because I think you'll learn the same lessons because it seems like we kind of, as a as a human race, we tend to repeat the same mistakes again and again, and we seem to try to come out of it uh, in the same way, um, except we live in a sort of different world right now. So given that we are on this this overstimulated, uh, information-rich age where I, I often say this is that ignorance is a choice, um, the challenge becomes how do you rise, cut through all this noise that exists um, through, whether it's online media, as you said, Netflix and, um, and social media, for example, and get the right message across to people. So where's your focus right now in terms of um, you know, drawing upon all these years of experience you've had uh, as an author, as a speaker, as an influencer, um, and now a podcaster? Um, what, 
where do you, how do you decide what to focus on? You know, you could be doing 10 things at once, right? So where's your biggest focus at the moment? My focus is on creating a vegan world one person at a time because that's how it happens. And I am interested, as you said earlier, in spirituality. I'm interested in all kinds of things. I mean, the biggest book I ever wrote wasn't about veganism. It was called Creating a Charmed Life, because if you're going to live one, it may as well be a charmed one. So I do have all these other interests. But in December of 2010, I went to a PETA fundraiser, and they showed films. And I had been seeing films like that for probably, even at that time, almost 40 years but that night, my heart was extra open, and I knew I had to do something. And going home in the subway, it was just like I heard the voice of God saying, you need to write a book and call it Main Street Vegan. It needs to have 40 little chapters with a recipe at the end of each one because people don't have long attention spans and they all like food. And you need to gear it to the young woman that you were in Wheaton, Illinois, when you finally took the plunge and became vegan in earnest. So to me, the vegan space is so exciting because every person who makes this transition, and even people who come in this direction, but certainly people who start carrying the I'm a vegan kind of banner, have this amazing energy to go out and not so much recruit. It's not like standing on corners trying to drag people in, mm -hmm. but I think we do something that I call attraction activism. Very often, people do become healthier, more energetic. Some people would say they get a little bit more attractive. And so just like they say in AA, if you have what somebody wants, they're going to do what you did to get it. So without having to change politicians and all that first day out, we're changing individuals, which can do amazing things. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, you can almost take... Uh of way the the vegan uh, word of philosophy from what you do and and if you then analyze it what you're trying to do is just just create better functioning human beings who uh, firstly transform their own life and then are able to attract others to do the same because if you really think about the happiest longest living people across the world they usually share some common traits they have uh, some sort of a spiritual practice they they eat well. They eat mostly plants, and uh, um, they mo they move. So, without I'm not sure to what extent you have uh, any movement practice or fitness built into your programs that you you teach people, but you definitely have the first two. And the way you even communicate, it's it's very much about um, not just replacing one food with the other, but replacing uh, your mindset as you approach food, and then that translates into other areas of your life. So. The reason I said, even if you take out the the vegan word from it or the the fact that you are trying to help people to be vegan and then spread that message, you, I think, in some ways are inspiring people just to be better than themselves. So in some ways, if you look at the work you did with uh, Creating a Charmed Life, you are still doing that. Well, thank you. Somebody told me early on when this, meaning this more enlightened way of living, 
touches you anywhere. It touches you everywhere. And so I see people who make the movement choice first, or they make some other choice first, or something that I think is very powerful is if you can block out a certain amount of time first thing in the morning. I love the idea of two hours. That's a lot for a lot of people. But to take that piece of time for what I call me in the morning, meditation and exercise. Mm -hmm. You take care of me in the morning. You can take care of the rest of the world all day long. So this going within, this being physically and spiritually set, then you can go out in the world and pick up your phone and all the rest. But I find with myself, if I pick up the phone for anything other than the meditation timer early in the morning, Mm -hmm. it can erode the whole day. So even though I don't think being vegan is Mm. necessarily a terribly disciplined lifestyle these days, I mean, you can eat practically anything and it's wonderful, but I think if you really want to be part of this movement for good, there needs to be a certain amount of discipline in life. And I think, too, there's the temptation that all of us become vegan and think, oh, I want a vegan business. I need to be a professional vegan. And with Main Street Vegan Academy, I am training professional vegans. So I certainly believe in that. But I also believe in people doing what they already do if they're happy with it in this sort of attraction activism space, that if you're somebody who's successful, if you're somebody who can can radiate what this lifestyle means, who can talk about it, who can, in all honesty, make money and donate to things and invest Mm -hmm. in things, then you don't necessarily have to be a vegan entrepreneur Mm. to be a vegan angel. (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's, it's empowerment at the end of the day. You're empowering people to firstly, um, who are already drawn in by curiosity or passion for changing the way they eat for health reasons or whatever other reasons. And then you are empowering them with tools to then use that as and then turn that into their mission in life. So maybe that's a good sort of segue for us to get into the work that you're doing right now with the the academy. How did that kind of come about? Because from from an outsider's perspective, you you probably were first you got popular because you wrote those books that were very famous. You were on Oprah years ago. Um, but your core business as of now is the Academy, right? It is. I consider myself to have a 16-lane highway kind of business. You would think I was some mega conglomerate. But there's a lot going on. Mm. Um, the Academy is core. But if somebody asks me at a party, what do you do? I say I write books because that was what I said for so long, I just can't imagine ever saying anything else. So there is a lot going on, and the Academy is a very exciting part of that. The way it came about was what I call a vegan miracle, and some people don't like that word, but I've written enough spirituality books that I can use it if I want to. And I really do think that this is the age of vegan miracles, because I believe that after all these millennia, of non-human animals being so mistreated by our species that their time is coming around. And I think that when we really, really want to do this thing, sometimes we get some help that is inexplicable. So what happened for me was I had the idea for the book Main Street Vegan, and my publisher didn't like Main Street. Uh, They said, it sounds like the tea party. And I'm thinking, well, you know, those people have arteries. (laughs) But anyway, they had bought it, so they didn't want Main Street. And I was trying to write this book 
with another title, and I couldn't come up with one. My husband and I were walking up Broadway, and there's Michael Moore, who had liked one of my earlier books, a weight loss book that I had written. I gave my card to the woman who was with him, and 10 seconds later, I hear Victoria, and there's Michael Moore following us up Main uh, Broadway, saying, we need to talk. We need to talk about food. So we talked, and then we started talking on the phone. And one night, I don't even know why I said this. I just said, this book I'm writing is supposed to be called Main Street Vegan. The publisher hates Main Street. He said, they're wrong. It's like to kill a mockingbird. Let me talk to them. <laughs> so there was a three-way call with this Academy Award winner and my editor and me. And he convinced her and she had to convince the higher-ups. And when she called me to tell me that she had indeed done that and that Main Street Vegan was my book title, it was just like the heavens opened. And I knew that all these other things had to start happening. And I'm thinking, there should be a Main Street Vegan radio show. I didn't <laughs> even think podcast. You know, this was 2011. We weren't thinking podcast. At least I wasn't. And then Main Street Vegan Academy training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches. So I put the first one out there and didn't know if anybody would come because even though I'd been vegan a very long mm. time, I hadn't been writing in that space. I wasn't really out in the vegan space. But we got 13 people for the first class and several of them have gone on to do amazing things. One of the people in that class was J.L. Fields, that probably a lot of your foodier listeners know for uh, vegan pressure cooking and the vegan air fryer. She runs a culinary um, academy in Colorado Springs where she lives. She's my co-author on the Main Street Vegan Academy cookbook. And all these amazing people showed up. And so I offered another one, and they kept showing up. And now we do four to five a year, and some years we do a master class for graduates, and we get more into some of the nitty-gritty issues, a little bit more into some of the business issues. And to date, we have 350 graduates in 24 countries. Wow. So, so many questions there. So firstly, uh, before we even get into, I, I do want to know what a how do you define a, a vegan lifestyle coach? But before we get into that, um, I do want to get your reactions to something that has been uh, written about a lot in the last couple of years since uh, vegan has in some ways gone mainstream and plant-based eating is the new thing for everyone. Uh, most Americans are trying to eat more plant-based foods. What do you think about this backlash for the use of the word vegan? Um, and the fact that it is um, and it's sort of tainted because of its connections or its history with animal rights activism. Um, and a lot of food companies won't use the word vegan at all on mm -hmm. their products because it thinks it makes people assume it's not for them if they are not if they don't ascribe to the vegan label. Right. It's, it's a complicated topic, but I, I thought you may have a lot of thoughts on it. Oh, I do. And and it is. It's it's complicated. I always think of the big display of dates in my local supermarket in Harlem with big stamps on them that said vegan. And I remember thinking, it's a fruit. <laughs> I mean, it's always been vegan. But evidently, that distributor thought that that was a selling factor, that if you say it's vegan, it means it's clean, it's pure, it's healthy. Mm -hmm. So I understand some other food people see it differently. I like the word 
because it's been around for over 70 years and people finally know what it is. And I remember when they didn't. You're a what? <laughs> is that that where Spock on Star Trek came from? Hmm. And nobody could pronounce it. It was always vegan and vegan. And so finally... People know what it is. And I am very much about efficiency. Mm -hmm. And to toss out a word that it took 70 years for people to understand is ridiculous because mm -hmm. we don't have another 70 years for people to understand something else. The connection with animal rights, I personally have no problem with whatsoever because the fact is the animal that has something to do with your dinner, whether immediately killed for your dinner or eventually killed for your dinner, as in the case of, of eggs and dairy, has more to do with what you're eating than you do. You're going to have 80,000 meals in your life. What's this one, more or less? But to that animal, that was everything. So I think that we're not just bringing about a better kind of diet, a tastier kind of cuisine. We are trying to bring about an evolutionary shift and a revolutionary change so that people really do not just open their hearts in terms of arteries, but open their hearts in terms of all the beings that are on this planet, all of whom are as invested in their lives as we are. So if I were only a health vegan, and I consider myself both, I mean, I've had amazing, great luck with the health. I mean, I lost over 60 pounds. I've kept it off for 35 years, which is practically a Guinness Book of Record things. I don't take any medications. I don't have any of the health problems that people in my family did long before they were my age. And yet I'm still an ethical vegan. And I know this because if I am stuck in an airport for 14 hours and there's nothing left except French fries and salmon, I'll eat the French fries. <laughs> That's how you tell what kind of vegan you are. So even if I were just health and that's all there is, why would I mind somebody thinking that I actually had an open heart for animals, that I was someone like Leonardo da Vinci, like Pythagoras, like George Bernard Shaw, who actually cared about other beings. That wouldn't be an insult. Mm. So that's how I think about that. Yeah. that's. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's uh, standing up for what you believe in is, is probably the most empowering and inspiring thing most people can do. And waving the your own view of yourself or changing it or changing the terminology that, that's being used uh, because you think it'll be better rece received by someone else is, I, I don't know, it, it, it works in the case of products maybe, but I think people need to just know what they believe in and stand for it. And if you do it in a way that's positive, uh, most likely people will be receptive to it. Now, of course, Labels have their problems because then you you know you kind of people tend to get a little fanatical sometimes about things, but um, but I don't think it has to be that way, and it doesn't mean that we don't need labels because without words and and labels we wouldn't have any language. So. Yeah, and I think even we think sometimes these days that plant based means health and vegan means animal rights. I don't know what we're supposed to say for the environmental people, but whatever. <laughs> But plant-based is not what's used in the medical literature. They say vegan 
for the very reason, number one, that it's a word that's established and people know what it means, and because plant-based is so wishy-washy. Some people use it to just mean they're vegan. Some people use it to mean they're a super healthy vegan and they don't use oil or sugar or salt. And other people use it to mean, well, I'm kind of sort of vegan, but I Mm -hmm. eat some animal foods. Why would we want to embrace a term that has no definition. Yeah. If if we had a hundred years to play with this, if it were just a, a little game, well, that's fine. But what we're learning from people like you who know about the environment and the climate, we don't have that time. Mm-hmm. We need to call a spade a spade, and in my opinion, call a vegan a vegan, <laughs> and go out there and change things. And I think it's also very important that we don't set up vegan as some kind of religion, because obviously the people who come in this direction, if enough of them do it, are doing a great deal of good. So I'm certainly not saying that we want to be those angry vegans who are all over everybody because there was some honey in their skin cream or whatever. But I think the word is a nice word. Yeah, and it's also the way you do I mean, you do it, really. It comes down to, how, as you said, you know, it is you don't want to be one of those people attacking everyone because mm-hmm. of their you know, perceived lack of perfection compared to how you see yourself. Um, and I think that just leads to to unnecessary um, backlash, and it leads to unnecessary vitriol amongst yeah, people, which yeah. we don't need. And I, I don't really care what word people use as long as the person mm-hmm. to whom they're speaking understands what they mean. The story I always tell is I was at a veg fest out in America <laughs> and went to dinner with a gentleman, and two other people came along. And it was a a Turkish restaurant, so there was a vegetarian menu insert, and my friend and I ordered from that, easy to be vegan. And then um, the young woman that we were with ordered a chicken dish, and the man ordered a lamb dish. Even though they had been going on at length about how we're plant-based, our whole lives have changed because we're plant-based, it's so wonderful to be plant-based, and probably because my jaw hit the table— the man explained to me, well, we're plant-based. We're not vegan. So we have animal protein maybe twice a month. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. If I drank alcohol twice a month, I wouldn't make one of those nights when I'm going out with the Baptist preacher. I mean, the whole thing was just (laughs) surreal. And so I think as long as you're being understood, you Mm. use the word that you like. That's true. Right. And so I do want to go back to the Academy, though. I know we went on a tangent there, but uh, I think it was needed to set up uh, the discussion we're going to have. I think... So you said you started in the Academy in, what was it, 2012? 2012, yes. That was, I would say, right before this, what I've really observed uh, is a cra- amazing wave of uh, interest in vegan eating in yes. the past uh, four or five, five or six years, I would say. Yes. Um, and it's what, what, is, what is interesting is back in 2012, what, the first people who signed up for the Academy, what were they hoping to get out of it? Because it was you were probably going to just teach them what you had learned over the years of being and um, and living this way. Uh, what were they coming in for? What were they hoping to take that knowledge and then do something? Because I know it's evolved now, but sure. what was that first batch? It always is fascinating me how, it always fascinates me how something like that even gets started. Well, it is because these people didn't really know what they were getting. Some of them knew my reputation. I mean, I've written for Vegetarian Times and that sort of thing for many years. But most of them really just took a chance. 
So some of them were already doing some kind of vegan work. At least one had been through the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, which isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. vegan, but a lot of people take it in that direction. And I think others were just looking for something besides their day job or in addition to or a way to increase their activism. They were doing what they could in their communities, but they just wanted to take it to the next level and they were willing to take a chance. So I have a wonderful faculty and did from the very beginning. I I don't do this by myself at all. So we have a a curriculum that has vegan principles at the base, which is, is animal rights, environment, health, nutrition, and then... And we have communication principles. You might know all the stuff, and you do to come to the academy. You have to uh, read seven books and listen to several podcasts and things like that. But then you have to know how to talk to people and not turn them off and not say you have to be vegan by tomorrow or you're a terrible person. That's just not going to help us. And then we have business principles for those who do want to take this out into the world. And even though the certification we give is vegan lifestyle coach and educator, so many of them have this entrepreneurial gene, and then they take it out into the world and start a business. Yeah. So how is that? I mean, you've got some people who come through your academy. You mentioned JL, who now is your co-author on your cookbook. Uh, But a, a few others have gone on and done some interesting and different things. Um, yeah, tell me more about the the, the graduates from the program oh. as well as sort of how the program itself has evolved as now in the year 2018, it seems like every other person is launching a new business in the space. So there's never been a bigger need for trained professionals who understand what they're doing um, and are able to go about communicating it in a way that, that you do. Oh, thank you. Well, oh, I just love my graduates. My <laughs> daughter has told me she does not intend to have children. And I said, well, that's okay, because I have 350 grandchildren. A few of them are older than me, but that's all right. <laughs> so uh, one who's a really big deal this month is Kat Mendenhall. I mean, she's a big deal all the time to me, but this month she's featured in O Magazine, a three-quarter page beautiful spread with pictures. Pictures. And what Kat did was, I think it was day five of the Academy, we all noticed that she was taking very intensive notes and we couldn't figure out what was so interesting on day five that was making her do all of this writing. And then we learned she wasn't writing. She was sketching cowboy boots. She's from Dallas. So there was a need. So she started Kat Mendenhall. These are custom cowboy boots. They are eco-friendly, made in America. There are 35 traditional Texas boot makers left in the world. Only two of them wrote back to her. The other 33, I think, were offended that someone would suggest that they work in non-animal materials. But she didn't need 35. She needed one. So she has this wonderful business, um, mostly online, little retail space there in, in Dallas as well. And now O Magazine has mm-hmm. found her. So these are exciting things for me as, as someone who started a school. Riverdale Cheese, that perhaps you've been to yeah. in Brooklyn, <laughs> is one of our graduates. Beautiful little fromagerie and gourmet <laughs> shop. 
And uh, Michaela Grobe, who has that, is really exemplary. In fact, she is coming back for the master class to um, teach about a vegan retail business because she didn't just do Main Street Vegan Academy. She did small business administration courses. She got a mentor at SCORE. And if people haven't heard of the senior core, the service core of retired executives, they're in almost every city through the small business administration. Chances are they won't be vegan but they are so on top of things. And you think, well, they're retired. Do they know about social media? Yes. They're they're just stunning. And so she got all of this kind of business acumen, and then she tacked it on to her background in the hospitality field. And this is one of my big soapboxes about vegan business. So many people just want to throw away the life they had before, that it's almost as if they were in banking or they were in education, and and it's now anti-vegan because they're vegan and they want to throw out everything from before. But what you did before is Mm -hmm. the stepping stone for what you're going to do next. So Michaela took her ability to be in the hospitality, service, food kind of business. Plus, she's from Vienna. Well, what do you think about with Vienna other than Mozart? (laughs) It's pastries and coffee and cheese. So that one's great. And then we have a new one coming. And then I'll stop. Three's the charm. Uh, A couple who actually uh, took the course separately, even though they were married. Uh, The wife came first and liked it so much that her husband came. And um, Carlo and Carmela Lenai, they're starting V Marks the Shop in Philadelphia. It's been online for a while offering packaged vegan foods. But now they're going to have a lovely little convenience store all vegan and thrilling. Plus, it's really cute. It's in one of those historic buildings they have in Philly. So, gosh, wow. I do sound like I'm talking about my grandchildren. No, it's so exciting. I mean, that is it must be so exciting to have that, uh, to be able to talk about people who came through your program and have gone on to do interesting, amazing, impactful things. Uh, and I think it's still very early on. The fact that you've started doing this way before uh, most people, at least most publications, were even talking about the 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 benefits of eating vegan or the environmental benefits of, of uh, eating this way. Um, you look now, there's not a day that goes by where either the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, or some big publication is not talking about a new business in the space or, or a new entrepreneur doing interesting things. But back when you were getting started, sort of around the same time I was thinking about One Green Planet, it's so funny. Back then, people thought this was sort of a fringe, crazy idea. And and here you are six years later, and you not only have grown your own business, but you've now able to seed uh, and, and kind of create this, this movement um, in the way that you wanted to do it, right? You haven't compromised. It seems like you, you still... Um, Run it on your own. You're not necessarily looking for, or maybe you are, we'll talk about that, looking for an outside investor or a partner. But I could easily see that in this day and age, especially with interest in vegan eating uh, on the rise and, and never more popular than ever before, you could turn this into some some really, you know, you could take this and scale it up. So have you been tempted to do that? And uh, has this gotten bigger? And uh, because it still seems like you are very selective about the class size, um, so maybe talk a little bit more about how that has evolved and 
And what are your plans to make this bigger, if at all, or you want to keep it going the way it is now? That's a really good question because it depends on which day you ask me. <laughs> My fantasy is that there is a Main Street Vegan Center somewhere mm -hmm. in Manhattan that would house the academy, that would have a little cafe, and that would also be there for other vegan plant-based events. So an author is coming through town and, and needs a place to speak. There is a screening of a film. Whatever it is, that this would be the place to come. I kind of base that on the New York Open Center, what they mm -hmm. have been doing for over 20 years in the spirituality space, nobody's doing in the vegan space. So that's very tempting. But what is going on as of right now with Main Street Vegan Academy is it is still small. We keep each class to 20 people. And the wonderful thing about that is I get to know people. Every now and then I will forget a name or I will confuse somebody with somebody else. And I know there's going to be more of that as we get more graduates. But it, it is People feel that they have come into a family. And one of the things that we offer that I think is so valuable is that we're there for people afterwards. We have a private Facebook group when uh, a job opportunity comes up. I mean, some of our people have gone to work for PETA. Somebody went to work for the Barnard Clinic in, in mm -hmm. D.C. And and there's support. Our um, dietitian offers herself there for people that get nutrition questions that are beyond their pay grade. They've literally got a dietitian in their pocket to go to. So that is one of the benefits of being small. The other thing that we do is that we take field trips. And I think particularly for visual and kinesthetic learners, people who really get it when they experience it, these field trips in New York City are so powerful because a lot of people come from small towns. I mean, we've had people from, from all over. We have people from Tanzania and, and South Africa and, you know, my hometown of Kansas City. And so there is no vegan shoe store there. And the fact that they go to one and they get to smell it and they get to shop a vegan bakery – a little raw food market. This is just, it blows people's minds. So uh, this is New York. The little raw food market can't hold more than 20 people at a time. So scaling has challenges, and yet there's a part of me that is so excited mm -hmm. about making this thing go great big. Great big. Why not? Why not? We yeah. have a planet to save. Animals are suffering. People are dying sooner than they need to. Let's just do this thing. Yeah. And the fact that you've got so much interest and you've already built a brand. I mean, what you can't and I think you mentioned it, it was very important is that you can't discount the the big benefit of community in this whole thing. Right. The network that you establish. I'm sure people who come through the program, not only are they connected with each other, but now they have uh, connections to uh former graduates as well. And then you know, you have the opportunity to set up some sort of a mentorship program between them as well. So I'm sure as some become more successful or more recognized, they can then bring in others. And so they pay it, pay it forward. Um, I mean, the, the possibility is endless. You could do also a shorter online version of it, um, expand, do multiple classes in the city. Uh, I, I totally see the the benefit of it. And the question I do have, though, is compared to, say, six years ago, the people who come in the program now, what is their key motivation? Because earlier it seemed like they just were interested in vegan living and eating. 
But now they've seen some success stories. Mm -hmm. So has that changed? Do you see the kind of uh, students changing? They know a lot more. (laughs) I find that there is a great deal of sophistication because there is so much information out there. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying earlier, ignorance is a choice. Mm -hmm. And the people that are applying for this program and probably a lot of people who are applying for a lot of things have not made the choice of ignorance. So um, there there is uh, a level of sophistication that is very stimulating. Um, People, many are already involved in some kind of vegan business when they come. And our basic certification, when we're talking about being a vegan coach, what I would like to see is that 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 guidance becomes something the way we are seeing with personal trainers. I remember when nobody had a personal trainer and then celebrities had a personal trainer And now lots of people have personal trainers. And the health coaching world is getting to the point. Mm -hmm. I know Dr. Oz mentions them every now and then. That's great. And I think vegan coaching, it needs to come to that. It doesn't mean that you have to have a coach to Mm -hmm. be vegan. But if you're someone who likes to have people to walk you through things, if Mm -hmm. you've got the personal trainer and, you know, your fabulous, I don't know, eyebrow person or whatever (laughs) it is, then when you're looking at veganism, you want somebody to take you through that, too. So we're trying to do a couple of things. We're educating about veganism, and we're also educating people about getting some help with their veganism, because unfortunately, the recidivism rate Mm. within veganism is really high. And it's never anything awful like, oh, my gosh, I became diabetic. No, it's always like, "Uh, I kind of didn't feel so good. Well, what is that all about? And it's very often I got a new boyfriend. But (laughs) whatever it is, if you've got some support and some guidance there, then we don't have to lose people and try to get them mm. back again. Yeah, and, and it's it's so interesting that you've stayed focused on uh, this space in the sense that you've continued to put out books, continue to do your academy, um, and use the brand Main Street Vegan and that platform to to follow through on your core mission, which is get more and more people, one person at a time, as you said, um, to go to be vegan and then spread that message and attract others in. Uh, you know, I can't help but think of that in the context of what's been happening in the last few years. I mentioned that uh, the the word vegan and plant-based eating has just gotten so much more popular. Uh, you now have a lot of um, uh, people who previously would have, who would have been activists for the rest of their career have started to shift into uh, the food industry and started to see that maybe an easier way to tackle the problem of uh, factory farming uh, and the the senseless, senseless murder of billions of animals as part of that system to feed the world can be solved if you could just get people to eat vegan food. So by producing plant-based meats and, and cheeses and other products. And that whole industry has just exploded and we touch on that on this podcast. We've interviewed a lot of those uh, entrepreneurs who've started those companies and investors who focus in that space. So it seems like in the last few years, the attention has all shifted to the supply side of things, right? We can't keep uh, sort of convincing consumers to go vegan because it seems like eventually you don't convince anyone and only a certain small percentage of the market is going to go vegan. But by changing the products, you're not able to reach everyone, even those that are not ever going to go vegan. So 
given that's where a lot of people are paying, putting time, attention, and a ton of money right now through investors and others, what are your thoughts on that? Is and were you tempted to shift and then say, let's you know start a cheese company? <laughs> I mean, you had the recipes and you had the knowledge, uh, and a lot of people are getting tempted to shift into now launching their own food businesses because they see that's where all the attention and the action is. How is it that you still stay focused in in, uh, in your sort of swim lane? And um, secondly, is then do you think that people are missing out on other opportunities to bring about change because we now are myopically trying to change the food system I from, do. <laughs> from the food side itself? Yeah. yeah, I think what's happening in the food industry is fabulous. I mean, it, it's so exciting. And yet, I think that uh, somebody that a lot of people think was really smart, a guy called Jesus, said uh, <laughs> life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. There is more to veganism than just the food. So to me, veganism is this incredibly beautiful, luscious pie with lots of slices. And maybe some of the slices are bigger than others. But yes, food, big deal. That's important. So some people are going to take the root of the innovative food products. Other people are going to take the root of, I don't eat anything processed. I'm whole foods, plant-based. It's all good. <laughs> Whatever brings people in. But when I think about the fashion side, because that was my first career. I went to fashion school in London right out of high school. I thought I was going to be a fashion coordinator and work for Vogue. Instead, I work for vegan. Um, <laughs> But there's that. And, and then there's the idea of, of families and travel and retirement. And why isn't there a health insurance company for vegans? There's so much out there. There's so much possibility. And certainly in the entertainment education space, I mean, I have a, a documentary that I'm producing with a filmmaker, Thomas Jackson. It's called A Prayer for Compassion to interest people who identify as religious or spiritual in veganism. So you see, we're getting to the point where we're niches within niches. <laughs> you know, I mean, we think of a wonderful film like Game Changers that's mm -hmm. focusing on men and men with athletic um, Aspirations. aspirations. And so, you know, we're focusing on the people who say, well, I've got a guru or, you know, I'm an observant Jew or whatever it is, then maybe part of that could be opening up to this. And so that film is happening. But we also have a feature film. A documentary takes a lot less money than a feature film. And the feature film is too scary for people. Are we ready for a family movie mm -hmm. with a vegan protagonist with a cow in it, are we ready? Yes, we're ready. We are so ready. And I have a feeling that if I had a food product that was as fabulous as this screenplay, <laughs> I would have lots of investors. But nobody has yet stepped up to the plate to say, you know what? It's time. It's time for a movie with an animal theme, a vegan in it, that isn't just a kid's movie with cartoon characters, a real story about what it's like out there in the real world. Yeah, why did you think of a movie as a, as a thing to focus your time and energy on? Well, actually, it was my husband's idea, and oh. this is so sweet. And to anybody <laughs> who is married or in partnership with someone who's not vegan and you think they're never going to be vegan, well, I actually 
started dating my husband because he wasn't vegan. I felt like I had had so many idealistic relationships that maybe just somebody normal would be okay. I didn't know, fall in love and all that. So he did become vegetarian fairly Mm -hmm. soon in our relationship. Vegan took a while. He just didn't get the connection. But once he made the connection, he was all in. Went up to Farm Sanctuary so that he could get to know some cows because he had this idea to write about something with a cow. He'd never met a cow. (laughs) (laughs) Gene Bauer knows a lot of cows and talked him through it. So he started it. And then I came in with some of my writing background and, and all that. And It's wonderful, and it hasn't been done yet. And Mm. I love things that haven't been done. One of my vegan business mentors is Leanne Hilgard of Vote, who just looked out in the world and said, okay, what is not being Mm. done for animals? Warm winter coats that are dress up Mm -hmm. so you don't have to wear you know, your raincoat and a lot of sweaters or your ugly fake fur from Target. (laughs) And so she brought these beautiful, beautiful coats into the Mm. world. They hadn't existed before. So we want to bring a family feature film into the world. It hasn't existed before. Mm. I wish you could eat it. Because if you could eat it, we'd have great big investors. Yeah, you would have 10 billion, 10 million at least by now. (laughs) At least. It's... um... It's interesting, isn't it? Even a few years back, the people making uh, uh, plant-based meats or you know alternative meats and cheeses were regarded as sort of not doing something very revolutionary. But look at how that's changed yeah. right now, right? And but they had the courage to do it before it was um, cool and popular. Exactly. Uh, and now you see everyone sort of jumping on the bandwagon, doing the same thing. And I find that all. You know, I'm not saying we don't need more food companies. Of course, we do need more products and food companies. But, and I've said this a bunch of times, is that's not the only thing that's going to bring about the kind of change in the time frame we have to bring about that kind of change. And you mentioned it too, is that, yes, if you were just having fun and we had years and years to just, uh, I don't know, convince people to eat this way or that way or wear this or wear that, it's all good, right? But if you think about it, and you've heard me talk about this we kind of have 30 years and to get this right. Maybe the next 10, 15 years are probably the most crucial ones. And so we need to hit this from every possible angle. And um, that involves more than just making another vegan cheese um, or, or, or coming up with another variation of a similar product. So I think the, the, the pace we are at, that's why media is so interesting. That's why podcasts and you know, websites and video and all of that stuff is interesting because you may not be able to point to one single product um, that is bringing about change, but the kind of impact that you can have through the medium of storytelling is beyond uh, the imagination of a product, right? A product at the end of the day or something you put in your mouth, unless you're going to eat the same thing three times a day uh, and everyone's going to do that, it is not the same impact versus you create something that then beca- then seeps into our cultural fabric. Exactly. Um, so that's why I'm a big believer in s- storytelling in whatever medium. And of course, the most successful medium we know of today is is movies and, and feature films. Um, so, I mean, I find that fascinating that 
people think that's just not something to focus on. Um, and of course, I don't know what I'm not an investor. I don't have their minds or money. Uh, and secondly, I'm not a, a filmmaker, so I don't know if, if this is a good or bad film and what how they would evaluate it. But the very fact that most people who are mission driven and passionate about bringing about this kind of change that that we are. Uh, just don't even consider that because it's it's not their focus at the moment. Yes, uh, strikes to me as a bit short sighted, and I think in the it, it'll happen sooner or later. Uh, you just have to keep pushing on because, um, as you said, the ability to see something that doesn't exist and go for it and actually create it, even if in the beginning it may seem small and obscure and sort of weird, um, is the only way things get done. So anyway, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox, but I agree with you. I think there's we need a, we need creative people to do creative things and identify opportunities, and we need to support and encourage them um, to to follow their dreams, even if the opportunity may seem obscure or strange or weird. Just imagine, just three or four years ago, it would have seemed completely un, not inconceivable that you would get a plant-based or veggie burger or a vegan burger in a TGIF or a White Castle. Yeah. Look at where we are. <laughs> Only because people dared to dream and then others supported them. So exactly. I, mean, I support anyone who dares to dream uh, and do their own thing. And, and I think others should start to see that we need to hit this at very different ways and uh, and we need to band together and put enough attention uh, on things like media and storytelling as much as we do in innovating the next big uh, plant-based burger that bleeds. I'm with you and so is Miss Liberty, our fictional cow who escapes from a slaughterhouse. No, so that's that's really exciting. So, what are your now? If you look at the place, the space of of vegan food and and where things are shifting in in the industry, what what are your thoughts about the next few years? I mean, where do you can you predict? Do you have a crystal ball? I mean, you've been doing this uh, before others thought it was cool, and um, you know, do you where do you see your attention going? Um, of course, besides the film and the academy. And by the way, I love the idea of having a, a physical space where people can learn how to eat this way and you mix in um, spirituality and all the other lessons that people need to be taught to be well-functioning human beings. <laughs> um, I love that idea too. But besides those, do you have any other projects lined up or where where you think your focus is going to be? Well, I do have my 14th book um, wow. just beginning to be in the works. My My working title is... A Side of Wonder. Not sure that that's going to stay the title, but the idea that we think about going vegan as helping people to be healthier, feeling better about themselves in an ethical way. They're supporting the health of the planet. But something else happens that I think we haven't focused on much, and that is this almost giddy sense of, oh my gosh, I am part of the upward progression of the universe. And I want to write about and and help people awaken to the idea that that in their health, in their relationships, in their lives beyond the dinner table, wonders can really come into their lives from being vegan or moving in this direction. So I think I need to go away somewhere and write. You know how writers do those retreats and things because it's really hard to write a book and run a business at the same time. 
really hard. Uh, <laughs> so that's happening. And I really do want to get out there on the road with the documentary, A Prayer for Compassion. There is um, a chance, we're hoping, fingers crossed, that it's going to be shown at the World Congress on Religions in uh, in April. I'm sorry, in November in Toronto, mm-hmm. which is, is thrilling because the World Congress on Religions that happened in 1893 saw the first yogi from India coming to this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also, uh, the founders of Unity that Mm -hmm. do my podcast, they were there. That was about the time they were going vegetarian. And so there's this wonderful sort of historic connection. So I do want to get out with that. want to get the word out on Miss Liberty. And who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I'll be celebrating from the sidelines is lab-grown meat. I don't care to eat it, but my dog does. <laughs> and uh, I think that's that's going to do wonders. Yeah, you're right. And and one more point about the, I think the, I think the work you're doing is so important is uh, you're trying to inspire people to get on board with the lifestyle that you've been living for years. Um, and at the end of the day, some people may dismiss it saying, oh, you're just trying to make more vegans. And that's sort of as a not a very big goal because who needs more vegans? We just need more people to eat vegan, right? Uh, but at the same time, if you actually examine and you see where all the innovation in the in the vegan food space that's happening right now, including lab-grown meat or clean meat, it's coming from people who are vegan, who were inspired to go that way, at least the first wave of them. I'm sure there'll be others who will jump on the bandwagon. But you look at all these big companies, Beyond Meat, Memphis Meats, all those founders had the same awakening that you and I have had because of how we kind of re-examined our relationship with food. And then they've taken that on and 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 become these creative uh, forces or these leaders in industry um, Leading some of the possibly biggest companies that will, will 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 be on our planet years from now, hopefully, and they did it because they had that own awakening. So, how can you discount the importance of trying to get other people to be more mindful of what their food is and be uh, and re-examine their cultural kind of associations with food? and change the way they eat, and then use that as a way to change the way they live. That's it. Um, and so I think it kind of going full circle with our conversation right now, I think uh, I can't stress the importance of also talking about this as much as I love talking about you know just the business side of the food industry and, and all the innovation that's happening there. I'll talk about that as as well. But I think we have to keep bringing back the point that if you empower one individual— like yourself, um, all like, you know, Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat or Uma Valeri from Memphis Meats. It was because of empowered individuals that you were a- they, they were able to bring about this sort of sea change in the industry. Um, so your mission at the end of the day is to that, is to light that spark in individuals and then who knows what they'll go on to do. And that is just supremely powerful in my opinion. Oh, it, it absolutely is. Because when you think about... The way that humans used to regard one another, and I suppose some people still do, but but just the sea change, just the shift, and what I've seen in my own lifetime. I mean, when I was a child, most of the adults that I knew had lots of prejudices about ethnicities and races and whatnot. They just did, and uh, jokes, the kinds of things that that comedians could say on TV. Mm-hmm. 
we would never, ever let anybody get by with that nowadays because there's been a shift. And this shift is going to have to come around animals, around food, around how we want to partake of our sustenance. I've heard it said that our most intimate relationship in life is with our food because it's what really becomes us. And I think as people get the idea, oh my goodness, do I want to become something from a slaughterhouse and a factory farm and and then discard that? And I love what's happening with um, the millennials and the Gen Z people, just more and more and more of them are vegan, not because it's some sort of they've been converted. It's just like, are you kidding? I would want to eat that. Yeah. No, I think you're so right. So I want to close out with uh, one last question, which I ask all my guests, is that if we, if you're successful in your mission and we not only convince people to eat these innovative new foods, but we also get them to just change their entire diet and lifestyle, what kind of world do you sort of envision? Um, I give the year 2050 because I, I look at that as being the point where we'll be hopefully better off, or we'll be in, in much bigger trouble than we are now. Um, but I want to talk about the positive scenario. If you get it right, what is your vision for the year 2050? I think of it as assisting Isaiah. There's a wonderful biblical prophecy that when I'm coming uptown on First Avenue across the street from the UN, they have it inscribed on a wall where he's talking about this beautiful future in which Everybody gets along, people, animals, everybody's vegan like they were in the Garden of Eden story. And I think that if we can even come close to this kind of a world, maybe where not everybody is vegan, but where eating animal foods is sort of where smoking cigarettes is today. Mm -hmm. Some people still do it, but it has not been cool in a really long time. And I believe that this will be not only what can really turn around the environmental crisis. I believe in 2050, if we get it right, we'll still be here. We won't be flooded. <laughs> we'll be breathing and living. Humans will keep going. We know the earth is going to keep going no matter what. How we fare is something else again. I also think that this is going to bring about peace. I'm not saying 100% there will never be a squabble, but I once read that the Aryan word for war came from desire for another man's cows. And when we get over the desire for another person's cows, I think we will have the closest thing to heaven on earth that we will ever have on this planet. That was beautiful. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much for your time today and all your insights. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to doing it again soon. Oh, thank you so much. I look forward to You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. 
Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.